Well, good evening. This is uh, part two of our systematic theology uh, series this, uh, this semester. I guess it's actually part four, because we've had systematic theology going for, for a year or so now. I know Michael Laurie was here. He taught through bibliology and then also theology proper. Um, the first six-week period, uh, we had several doctrines that were kind of combined into, into one class. Uh, Pastor John taught through uh, biblical anthropology, doctrine of man. Nate Weidman was here next, and he taught through the doctrine of sin, homardiology. And then Tim O'Shea was here last time, and he taught through angelology, uh, which is angels, demons, and the devil. Uh, and now I, I, I get to give you Jesus. I actually thought it was funny. Uh, Pastor Don gave us the fall. Nathan gave us total depravity and imputed guilt. Uh, Tim gave us the devil, and now here's Jesus. <laughs> so I think I got the better uh, deal um, from that. So um, there's a handout going around. Just slip your hand up. Um, if you get overlooked, we'll get you one. Make sure everybody gets one. Uh, there should be enough of them. But uh, this is Christology, the doctrine of, of Christ, and we'll be devoting actually the whole six-week uh, period uh, to this doctrine now. Uh, so you're stuck with me for six weeks, so. Hopefully that's a, that's a good thing. But um, I'd like to set the tone tonight, really, before we get into Christology, because this doctrine, I think, just is one of those doctrines that we can really push off to the side kind of unintentionally. Because, you know, if we don't believe in Christ, why, you know, why are we in the church at all? So um, it's, it's of utmost importance that we are clear on Christ, we're clear on, on that doctrine, and, and that we come to an understanding of him. So I'd like you to turn to the book of Philippians. If you would, I'd like to begin there tonight in the book of Philippians. And uh, I know uh, you boundless folks are teaching through the book of Philippians. Um, I'm not sure exactly what passage you are at, uh, so hopefully this is not uh, stealing Pastor Clay's thunder or being too repetitive. But I couldn't think of a better text uh, to start with than Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Paul writes, Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal persecuting the church regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered it to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I will attain the resurrection from the dead. So we've kind of parachuted into a a passage here. Paul's kind of continuing a line of reasoning he began in verse 2. He had some uh, very terse words uh, for those who insist that that circumcision, that a a work of the flesh, is necessary for salvation, and then states in verse 3 that God's people do not have their confidence in the flesh. And we arrive at verse 4, Paul completes this thought with a concession. Paul says, I just told you that you ought not to take confidence in the flesh for righteousness, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. Paul begins here by saying that he has all the reasons to take pride, to take confidence, to take a righteousness focus in himself. If anyone has a basis on which to boast in himself, in who he is and what he has done, it's me. Paul says. He then begins to list seven reasons that he could look to for righteousness in which to rest his confidence. He says he was circumcised on the eighth dayer. Literally, he was an eighth dayer. This is what the law commanded. It's what God instructed Abraham and his descendants to do as a sign of his covenant on the eighth day after birth. 
So Paul is saying he has religious pedigree. He was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a very zealous tribe. He not only had religious pedigree, but he came from a subset of the Jews that were very passionate about their religious pedigree. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. I think he's referring to a kind of ethnic and cultural purity here. He was not a Hellenized Jew. He kept the language and the customs and the culture which some Jews allowed to to fade away. And he was a Pharisee in regard to the law. He was an aggressive law keeper. His whole life was about keeping the law. He was a zealous persecutor of the church. He he saw Christians before his conversion as as, as pursuing a, a different end that was not the law. So he was not only an aggressive law keeper, but he was aggressive in persecuting those who turned from the law and to Christ. And he was blameless as far as the dictates of the law were concerned. Whatever the law said, he did, and everyone knew it. It was easy for him to take confidence in his own righteousness. You think you have reason to pride in yourself, boast in yourself, value yourself, look to your own virtue and righteousness. Well, I can even more than you, Paul says. You think you can display your righteousness and your value to society? I can even more, Paul says. I mean, everything his immediate culture, society, saw as valuable, Paul had it. Everything that would have given him status, everything that would have given him cultural influence was his. Everything that would have been considered of surpassing value, Paul had it. But then something had caused him to have a major change in his perspective. And he makes a rather astonishing statement in verses 7 and 8. All of that which would have been considered of surpassing value, he says, is worthless. All of that which would be considered gain, Paul now considers it a loss. Not neutral, loss. All of it is like a net negative to him. He he says it's like a, a stinking, rotting pile of garbage that's to be thrown out into the dump, discarded as utterly worthless. He says, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In comparison to the value of knowing Christ, all of that that he has is a net loss because it's easy to trust in those things and have confidence in those things. He was willing to discard all of it in order to get to know Christ and the true, surpassing, incomprehensible value of of him. Now, why? How could he say such a thing as this? Well, he explains. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I will attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul knew the Holy Spirit inscripturated that nothing is more important than gaining Christ. Nothing. Gaining Christ is of more importance than any works of righteousness you do. It's of more importance than what what group you are a part of, what country you came from, what your culture is or what your subculture is, how externally religious or spiritual you are, how passionate you might feel, and how virtuous other people think you are. All of that is a net negative in comparison to knowing Christ, because God is not interested in any kind of righteousness that comes out of us. God does not consider any of that gain. What is gain is Christ and His righteousness. Therefore, don't you think we ought to seek to know who Christ is, who Jesus is? I say this to the students in the youth group somewhat often. 
but what you believe actually does matter. It does matter what you believe. I mean, what you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ matters in a major sense because your eternal destination is dependent upon it, which is what Paul is trying to get at in this passage. He wants to know the power of Christ and his resurrection so that he will attain the resurrection. There is nothing in life more important than that. There's nothing more valuable than the worth of gaining the Lord Jesus Christ. So over the next weeks in this class, we're going to pursue knowing Christ and his work. So that like Paul, we may gain Christ and be found in him, not relying upon our own righteousness, but seeing and having confidence in the righteousness that is through faith in him, his righteousness. And our our goal is the same as, as Paul's, to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, so that we might be conformed to his image. So let this be our motive for for getting to know our Lord and getting to know his his work. This is why we study Christology. We need to know Jesus. We need to know who he is and who he is not, what he does, how he relates to you and how you relate to him, what he promises and what you gain in him. And praise the Lord, we can know Christ, can't we? God wants his people to know the Son. I mean, that's a primary role of the Holy Spirit, to magnify the Son before God's people. He wants you to know Christ. So what are we going to cover uh, in this class? Uh, In in your handout, there's kind of an overview there of of where we're headed. We have six, you know, 45 to to 50-minute class sessions, and we could easily spend double that amount of time (laughs) examining Christology. Uh, so we do have to be kind of selective and succinct uh, in, what we, in what we cover. So where are we headed? Uh, tonight we'll just kind of have an introduction to Christology. We'll examine a few things this evening uh, just by way of introducing Christology. I kind of toyed with calling this first class uh, the hodgepodge of Christology. Uh, there, there are a few topics within the doctrine that I didn't want to give an entire class session to, but are are certainly worth uh, taking a look at, and I think they are kind of introductory by by nature, Uh, so we'll look at what I'll call the influence of Christ, the names and titles of Christ, and also uh, the anticipation of Christ tonight. We'll then examine the person of Christ, we'll do that next time, uh, with the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, we'll see his pre-existence as the creator. And that divinity was clearly declared and demonstrated in him, in his incarnation, in the the bringing together of divinity and humanity into into one person. We'll look at some implications of his humanity as well. That'll hopefully be helpful. We'll then examine the atonement of Christ. Uh, We're actually going to give two class sessions uh, to the atonement. I think it's that important. We'll pump the brakes a little bit when we we get there, uh, and we'll be able to examine some things about the atonement a little more closely, so I'm excited for that. The resurrection of Christ and also uh, the ascension of Christ is next. We'll be examining both of these actually in in one Sunday night. Um, Well, I guess we'll be spending three sessions on the atonement uh, because the resurrection is technically part of that. It's God's stamp of approval on on the atonement. We'll uh, look at the accounts of the resurrection and the ascension and also some implications there. And our last class session together, we'll examine uh, what's referred to as the offices of Christ. He is prophet, high priest, and king. That will be just kind of a, <laughs> a 30,000-foot view of those things, uh, just a survey of each one of those, what his tasks are within, within those offices. Uh, and you'll notice throughout the class that uh, much of this will overlap. Theology is all interconnected. We systematize it as, as much as we can. We start with the scripture, and then we build a system as best we can. Uh, for example, we'll see Christ's office as high priest uh, quite clearly when we look at the atonement. Uh, we'll see Christ's divinity and humanity even tonight as we examine some of his titles. So a lot of this will, will overlap, and we you know, just kind of systematize it as best we can. This isn't in your handout, uh, but we are going to ask and answer uh, several questions that typically 
uh, come up when studying Christology. Um, I don't know how much time I'm going to be able to give to open Q&A, so just based on the material that I want to cover. Uh, so I want to anticipate some questions that often come up. Uh, a few questions I know at this point that we'll ask and seek to answer. Uh, is the virgin birth a necessary doctrine? Is that, is that necessary to believe? Uh, you may have thought this before or heard somebody ask. Uh, is believing in the virgin birth necessary? We'll look at that actually next week. Did Christ's work on the cross atone for the sins of the Old Testament saints? Or what did? We have, like, we have Christ to look back to. What about them? Is it correct to say that Jesus is fully God and fully man after his ascension? When Christ ascended, did he lose his humanity? Should he be understood as, as just fully God now? And then did, did Christ descend into hell during the time of his death? You know, Christ was crucified and then was resurrected on the third day. What about the other days? Where was he? What was he doing? There's a relatively common belief that Christ descended into hell and, and preached during that time. Is that biblical? We'll look at that. So we'll have a lot of fun with questions like that. So now I'd like to talk about, uh, just by way of getting uh, our feet wet into Christology, what I'm going to call the influence of Christ. The influence of Christ. And by influence, we mean that what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ affects quite significantly other areas of belief and other areas of life. Christology is not isolated. No doctrine is, but especially Christology. I've given you just a handful there of, of obvious examples. There are certainly more that we could look at, but just a few, just, just again to show you that Christology is not isolated. Theology overlaps. Doctrines affect one another, so it's important that we study and are taught the whole counsel of God. We need to make sure we're clear on Christ, because what you believe about him and his work will affect other areas of of belief. The first two here I've, I've given you are, are doctrinal, and the second two are more kind of applied. So just a, um, just a few uh, brief words about each of these. So first, there's a soteriological influence of Christ, soteriological influence. What we mean by this is what you believe about Christ affects what you believe about salvation, obviously. It affects your soteriology, your doctrine of salvation. And as you can imagine, how, how critical that is. I mean, if you don't believe that the atonement of Christ is an all-sufficient, once-for-all, never-again-to-be-repeated work, then that, that will affect the way you exercise faith in Him. You would likely believe that your works probably are needed as well to kind of make up for what's lacking in the atonement. There's some grace lacking there if it's not sufficient, so you've got to make up for it. Whereas Scripture would reflect that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What you believe about Christ will affect what you believe about salvation. So it's very critical that we get Christ right there's also an ecclesiological influence of Christ. What we believe about Christ affects what we do in and as the church. At its very fundamental base, there would be no church without Christ. You know the account in Matthew 16 when Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi and he asks them, who do people say that I am? Know that story? And the disciples give him a variety of answers, and then he asks them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds in Matthew 16, verse 16, Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, I, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now that's not a Pope passage. Peter, Petros, means stone or small stone. I've heard MacArthur say that a boulder-like truth came out of the mouth of the one who was the small stone. Christ is the one who builds the church, and he has built it on the confession that Peter made that day. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Christ, the Son of the living God, is the foundation of the church. The church belongs to him. It's his. He builds it. And he sets the terms for the church, too. Christ is the head of the church. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 and also Peter in 1 Peter 2 referred to Christ as the cornerstone of the church. A cornerstone sets the angles of the wall or the room. If you don't have a cornerstone, then you don't have a symmetrical room. The room's out of alignment and maybe won't even stand for very long. There are so many caricatures of Jesus that have no basis in biblical reality. The Son of God is not a ball of Play-Doh or a Gumby action figure that you can mesh and mold or, or twist and contort into whatever image or shape that you want. Christ is revealed to us. God has revealed his son to us, who he is. We are able to know who the biblical Jesus is. If you visit a church or a ministry and the biblical Jesus is nowhere to be found, then you don't have a church. It's not a church. You don't have the church without him. Now, changing gears just a little bit, there's also what I'm calling a pragmatic influence of Christ. Now, hold your horses. I know that when we hear the word pragmatic, we automatically think bad because of pragmatism, and, and rightly so. Pragmatism being the evangelical church's attempt to lure in the world, often using the world and the world's tools. Our biblical strategies, philosophies, vision casting that really has absolutely nothing to do with God's mission for the church. That's pragmatism. So, yes, bad. But the word pragmatic removed from that movement, just, just kind of in a vacuum, that, it just means dealing with reality in practical ways. What you believe about Christ affects the way you live your life sensibly or not. Just imagine for a moment, if you believe that Jesus Christ is that common American kind of caricature of a 1960s, 70s type hippie, you know, love and peace. We just love people because Christ loves people. How, how, how might buying into that caricature affect the way you live your life? Well, I would submit to you that you'll probably be affirming a lot of sin in the name of loving others. You'll likely be making excuses for self-destructive personal behavior that's dishonoring to God as revealed in the scripture, but you're not hurting anybody. You'll probably believe most, if not all, of your problems come from outside of you instead of from your own sinful, depraved heart. See, what you believe about Christ and who he is, that will affect the practical outflow of your life. And lastly, there's uh, what we'll call a societal influence. I won't belabor this, but I do think it's worth uh, mentioning. You know, a Judeo-Christian ethic has historically influenced society, particularly Western culture. The teachings of Jesus kind of broadly have, have been generally seen as, as helpful to society. And of course, that's, that's changing now because nothing is allowed to encroach upon your feelings or, or your behavior. But society has historically been influenced in, in a way by understanding Christ. I mean, I've, I've heard Russell Brand say that he recites the Lord's Prayer every day. I mean, Russell Brand is, is a New Age transcendentalist. I think it was Gandhi that said something like, I like your Jesus, but not your Christians. I mean, it's not disputable that, that Christ walked the earth from a historical perspective. Secular historians recognize the reality of Jesus of Nazareth. Society cannot dispute this and be intellectually honest. Even other false religions, like the Hindus and the Muslims, acknowledge the reality of, of Jesus. Now, secularists and pagans, they don't believe in him that he was who he said he was. And that's the ultimate question, right? Is he who he said he was? And of course, he verified fully that he was who he said he was. And it's up to us as the church to tell the Russell Brand types and the Gandhi types about the biblical Jesus because we have the scriptures. So just a few influences 
of Christ. You see how Christology can influence many areas. Now let's really get into uh, biblical Christology with the names and titles of Christ. The names and titles of Christ. The names of Christ uh, really do have something to tell us about his significance. The names and titles given to him are not meaningless or arbitrary. They paint a picture of who he is and what he does. I've given you a list there uh, in your handout of common names and titles attributed to him in Scripture. It's not a comprehensive list, just several common names and titles that you'll see. The first one, of course, is Jesus. The name Jesus, Jesus, is actually a Greek transcription of the Hebrew name Yehoshua, or Yeshua, or as we would pronounce in English, Joshua. This is a name, of course, seen in the Old Testament, a figure that you all know well from the earlier days of Israel's history. Numbers 13, verse 16. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. And this is the Joshua you're you're thinking about. Moses calls several men by name to spy the land, and he ends with this final young man, Hosea, the son of Nun. Moses renames him in this moment Joshua, Yehoshua, or Yeshua, a different Hebrew name. He was called Hosea first. A variation on that name means something along the lines of deliverance, like generally. Moses changes his name to Joshua Instead, which means God is deliverance, or God is salvation, or just plainly, kind of broadly, Savior. Very intentional and significant name change there, considering how God uses Joshua, right? The name Jesus, Jesus, is the Greek transcription of this Hebrew name, Joshua, meaning God is deliverance, or just Savior. Here are a couple of New Testament texts, Luke 1, 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary was instructed to name her son Jesus, and she would have likely considered the significance of this divinely selected name. She would have known what this meant. And then you have obedience to the command in Luke chapter 2. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. We don't want to overly spiritualize things that the Bible does not, but the sovereignly selected human name of Christ tells us a lot about him, doesn't it? His very human name means Savior. It means God is deliverance. God could have chosen any name for Christ, Any human name. He could have selected a name that conveyed his holy judgment upon sin. He could have selected a name that conveyed his regal status as the king of his people. But he selected a name which conveys the love and mercy and grace extended to a lost world. Jesus, Savior. Next we have Christ, Christos. This is the name we use probably most often in addition to Jesus. In Scripture, we see Jesus and Christ combined. And, of course, this does not mean that Christ is his last name. Jesus is his name. Christ is the title. We understand this title to mean Messiah or even anointed one. This is actually a verbal adjective of the Greek verb krio, which means to anoint it's very closely related to another Hebrew verb, which also means to anoint. A few Old Testament texts to, to illustrate this. Hopefully that's not too scrunched there on the screen. I tried to fit all three on one slide. Leviticus 4.3, If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Samuel 2.10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. King and anointed are the same person here. 
1 Kings 19, verse 16, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So the word is used in reference to anointing the high priest, kings, and in the case of Elisha, a prophet. Sound familiar? A prophet, priests, kings, those are what we refer to as the offices of Christ. So what's the significance of that? Anointing in in the Old Testament was a declarative act. It It was meant to explain to the person being anointed, as well as for others witnessing that that the one being anointed is authorized to perform certain duties or to exercise an office. They're set apart for that. They're publicly recognized for it. These were types of Christ. They pointed to the coming Messiah and his anointing as Christ. They were anointed because he would be anointed. Aaron the high priest, Moses the great prophet and mediator, David, God's anointed king, these were types of Christ. They pointed to the one who would be the ultimate Christ, Jesus. And all of these offices, you notice, have something to do with deliverance. Prophets would warn and give word from God to his people and often intercede for them. The high priest would in a way, mediate and make sacrifice to put off God's wrath for sin. The king was to guard and protect and rule God's people from God's enemies. Jesus would be the Christ, the ultimate Christ. The Messiah would truly deliver God's people in all of those ways. So Jesus is rightly declared Christ. The next title is Lord. This is the Greek word kurios. This is a word that ascribes authoritative worth to a person. This is highlighting authority. The Lord, lowercase l, is the guy in charge, the master of the house, the one you report to. Now, Christ isn't just any Lord. He's the Lord. He's the Lord of creation itself. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. You know, we use the phrase, Lordship of Christ, in relation to his, his sovereignty, his preeminent authority in view. He is the Lord. You don't make Jesus Lord. You don't make him anything. He is Lord, whether you acknowledge that or not. We submit ourselves to his lordship when you come to him in faith. He is the one in whom creation was made, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul says in, in, uh, in Colossians 1, For by him all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the master of creation of heaven and earth. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Lord. Son of God is the next title. This one is of great significance. This reflects, of course, the divinity of Christ, his deity. He is indeed God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son. This is an eternal, constitutive relationship between the Father and the Son. Being the Son is an immutable part of who he is. He didn't become the Son at his incarnation. He has always been the Son from eternity past, which we'll examine more uh, next week. Matthew three seventeen. Behold, a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God, the Father, declares Christ his beloved Son, the one in whom he's pleased. He openly declares here that he loves and delights 
in His Son. If the Father delights in the Son, then certainly we should as well. And this is also a declaration of His divinity. The fullness of deity dwells bodily, Colossians 2. And we'll see more of that again next time when we examine the divinity of Christ. But it was not only God who declared Christ was the Son. Matthew eight twenty nine, They cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They being two violently demon-possessed men. They knew exactly who he was. Even the demons acknowledge who he is. But it's one thing to know facts about Christ. It's another thing to love him. These demons didn't love him. They feared him. They knew they had an eschatological appointment with judgment coming. And they were afraid that the Son had arrived to torment them before that time was to come. And you know the story, Jesus frees the men and casts the demons into pigs, which proceed to drown themselves in the sea. This is the divinity of the Son on display. Authority even over the demons, authority only God can possibly possess. Matthew 16, verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We referenced this text earlier. Peter, Christ's disciple, knew and believed who he was, and he made this confession. He recognized and believed in his divine status as the Son. And Christ used this confession to, to build the church. One more text on this, First uh, John five twenty, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. We know God more fully. Through Christ. He has arrived in his incarnation and revealed God to us. And the Son of God is a title that only Christ possesses. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 asks, Which of the angels does God call Son? The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2 that God has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. There is no one else like him, he is the Son. Of God. Next is a whoops, next is a messianic title, Son of Man. This is a messianic title reflecting the humanity of Christ. That's not the only reason for this name, but it is a big implication of it. And you'll, and you'll notice uh, the Hebrew is listed there in your handout that I'm not going to try to pronounce, as well as the Greek. For Son of Man, and I've given you the Hebrew there just because this title specifically has its root in the Old Testament. The Son of Man is seen in Daniel chapter 7. Behold, verse 13, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This is a clear reference to Messiah, prophecy predicting Christ. He represents true humanity as it must be in God's everlasting kingdom. Authority, you you can see just from plainly reading these words, is attached to this title. Authority over temporal nations, as seen here in Daniel's vision. Also, authority over spiritual matters as well in Matthew 9 and Matthew 16, Matthew 9, 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Matthew 16, 27, for the, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Again, authority is in view here. Spiritual Authority, specifically to forgive sins, and then also his authority in his kingdom. Very evocative of Daniel 7. Another messianic title, Son of David. This might be one that you haven't considered, but it is a title of Christ. Again, a a title that reflects the humanity of Christ and that he's kingly. This title not only alludes to his lineage according to the line of David, but also to his worth as successor of this 
of this king. For the Jews, this was a fixed title of, of Messiah. Matthew nine twenty seven, a familiar story. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. So these blind men used this messianic title to address the Lord Jesus. I don't have this passage up here for you, but in Matthew 12, Jesus saw it necessary to remind the Pharisees that the son of David was also David's Lord, and that his kingdom is, a, is of a higher order than that of an ordinary earthly successor of David. Christ wasn't just any son of David. He was the promised king that had been anticipated. And the final name that we'll, we'll look at, um, or title rather, that we'll look at is the Word. This is a title that reflects the divinity of Christ and also, in a way, uh, the humanity of Christ. It reflects the fact that Christ is the spokesperson for God. The primary passage for this name is, of course, John chapter 1. I'd like you to actually turn there if you don't mind. John chapter 1. Passage of scripture that you're likely familiar with, John 1. It's like the Genesis 1 of the New Testament. Let's look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Logos is the the Greek term for the Word here. Three times it's used in this one verse, very clearly speaking about a divine person. Logos has a lot of Greek philosophical meaning behind it. It was mostly used in an impersonal way to describe Rational reason, rational wisdom, rational mind and the will. So John's Greek audience would have been familiar with this term. But Greek philosophical usage of logos is not the primary catalyst uh, for why John chose this word. It's a word that was familiar to the Greeks, but it was familiar to the Jews as well. This title is imbued almost entirely of Old Testament and New Testament meaning. I mean, think about what's implied with Christ being called the word. It was God's word that brought creation into being. He spoke, and it was. It was an expression of his power as creator. It was through God's word that he provided revelation to his people via the prophets. By his word, we know his wisdom, Proverbs 8. It was through his words that he spoke the covenant to Abraham and to David and the new covenant through through Jeremiah. His word is the expression of God's power and revelation and wisdom, even salvation. This title is loaded with meaning. Look down at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. He is the only son from the Father, so we know John is referring to the incarnate Christ. The Word became flesh. The divine took on human nature. We will revisit this text next week. So, just a few names and titles of the Lord. Now, for the remaining time uh, that we have, I'd like for us to transition to another topic within Christology that we'll call the anticipation of Christ. The anticipation of Christ. You know, the Messiah did not appear out of nowhere in a vacuum. There was a lengthy history of anticipating the Messiah. God's people knew there was one coming who would be Messiah, and they greatly anticipated his arrival. God had given them prophecy after prophecy concerning the Messiah. And Jesus himself declared that the prophets had spoken about him in John 5.39. You examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is those very scriptures that testify about me. So it is appropriate as well to recognize that we must not read Christ into every single Old Testament text. Every Old Testament text does not have Christ in it. Not every prophecy is about the Messiah. And not every appearance of a heavenly being is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son. Even, even with good intentions of magnifying the Lord, there, there's a danger of, of losing authorial intent and 
even authentic uh, exegesis if we read into passages that which is not there. That being said, there is not an insignificant number of Old Testament passages that are concerning the Messiah. So I'd like to briefly just examine a handful of these in the form of three umbrella concepts. What did God tell his people to anticipate? What were they to look for? And how did Christ fulfill these prophecies as well? Let's first begin with the anticipation of a redeemer. They anticipated a redeemer. They looked forward to one who would fix the sin problem that they knew so well. There was one coming who would rectify the sin, the evil, and the wickedness that had entered the world since the fall. And this redeemer would redeem them. He would be their redeemer. We see this all the way back in Genesis 3. I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Genesis 3, you have God pronouncing curses on the participants in the fall. Before he speaks to Adam or Eve, he first speaks to the serpent, the one who has led them into temptation, and you have this proto-messianic statement given directly to the serpent. I've heard some theologians call this the first covenant of Scripture. Not sure I would go that far, uh, but you do have God promising something here to the serpent. There's going to be one coming who's going to deliver a fatal blow to you. Your work will be undone. The power you have is going to be removed from you. And this figure who's going to accomplish this is going to be a seed of the woman. He'll be a member of humanity. Seed of the woman. That's really interesting language. You would think scripture would say seed of the man. But no, God says he will be a seed of the woman. The serpent deceived the woman. And the serpent being, at at the very least, Satan's representative. Therefore, a woman will be the mother of the one who will achieve victory over Satan. There are many that believe that this foreshadows, in a very distant kind of way, the virgin birth of Christ. So how does Christ fulfill this? Where do we see Christ fulfilling this? A couple places. Hebrews 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. He conquered death in his resurrection, thus rendering Satan powerless over those who believe. The devil has been defeated in Christ, and we escape his tyranny. And there will come a day when the devil will be permanently removed. A redeemer is what God's people anticipated. Now, they didn't have this whole picture like we do, but they looked for a redeemer. Part of this is that they also looked for a suffering substitute. Isaiah 53, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. He was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You are substituted out. He was crushed for your transgressions. He was crushed for your wrongdoing. The punishment designated for you was placed upon him. And he does this so you might be healed. This was what the Messiah was to do. And it's what they were to look for. And you know how Christ fulfills this. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself brought our sins in his body up on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. You can take a guess at what Peter was quoting there. Also, Acts 10.43, all the prophets testify of him, that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. They anticipated a redeemer, and Christ would be that redeemer. What else were they to look for? Well, they were to look for a king. They had anticipation of a king. For a long time, God's people did not have a king. They were ruled directly by God via a prophet like Moses. But you know the story in 1 Samuel 8 where they demand a king so they can be like the other nations. And you know, they had good kings and very, very bad kings. But even in their stubbornness, God was gracious and promised them that the Messiah would be their king. Turn to Psalm 2 quickly, if you don't mind. Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2, 
Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven's laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. So there's kind of a, a future eschatological theme here. There's going to be widespread rebellion against the Lord and his anointed king. And this king, God confirms, is going to be his son. And authority will be given to him over the nations. And those nations who mock the Lord will not stand. And then he essentially invites the world and the kings of the world to render obedience to his anointed king, who is the son. Now, there is some discussion on whether or not this psalm is actually referring to Christ or just another Davidic king. I think the New Testament, though, clearly treats the psalm in a messianic way. The book of Revelation cites this psalm 18 times. It's referenced a number of times in several epistles and also the book of Acts. And there was no historical king of Judah that met these elements that the psalmist lays out here in Psalm 2. So they were looking toward a coming one who was not only messianic in the sense of undoing the effects of the fall, but also the Messiah would rule as a king exercising dominion over the nations. 2 Samuel 2, verse 12, When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is a passage we often refer to as the Davidic Covenant. Nathan the prophet speaks these words of the Lord to King David. The throne of your descendant will be built by God for his name and his reign will be established forever. He'll be a specific king from a specific line. In this passage as well in verse 14, God says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Of course, we know Christ fulfills this according to the genealogy in Matthew 1. Also Luke chapter 1. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And this Messiah would be God's son. The son will be the Messiah king whose reign will have no end. So they anticipated a redeemer, they anticipated a king, They also had anticipation of a mediator. They anticipated a mediator. God's people had a a long history of prophets and priests who functioned as mediator of God's people. One who spoke for God and also approached the presence of God on behalf of the people for one reason or another. Moses is one of the most, or perhaps the most revered prophets, mediators of the Old Testament. Look at what Moses says here in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. To him you shall listen. This this is a reference to the coming Messiah. Moses is not just talking about his direct successor. Both the Old Testament and New Testament interpret this passage in a messianic way. There's going to be another prophet in the vein of Moses. He's going to do similar things. He's going to make intercession for the people. He'll speak speak with God. He'll be the mediator of a covenant. He's going to come from among God's people. He won't be an outsider coming in. He'll be one of you, Moses tells Israel. In the book of Hebrews... Christ is often elevated above the status of Moses, since Moses was so revered among the Hebrew converts. The writer of Hebrews tells his audience, and us too, that there is a better Moses, a more superior Moses. 
Hebrews 3. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. This statement would have been unheard of to the Jews. Who's, who's worthy of more glory than Moses? Christ is. Christ is deserving of more glory than even one like Moses. Not to denigrate Moses, but to elevate the status of Christ. Jesus is a better version of Moses than even Moses himself was. The writer of Hebrews treats Aaron, the high priest, like this. Christ is a better version of Aaron than even Aaron was. Moses spoke to God and on behalf of God to the people. Jesus did this in a far superior way. He's the final word from God. He would also be the one who would come in between man and God, as was the task of a prophet like Moses and a priest like Aaron. The Messiah would be someone who would stand in between sinful man and holy God. Moses pointed to Christ. Aaron's priesthood pointed to Christ. The one who could approach the presence of God and open that access for all believers. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is who the Messiah will be, psalmist says. And we'll examine what the order of Melchizedek is in due time when we arrive at the offices of Christ. It's very important that we understand that. But essentially, the coming Messiah will be a kingly priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. He won't be like Melchizedek. He'll be in the vein of Melchizedek. The Messiah will be the one standing in between man and God. He will be the one providing the atonement, and he'll be the king too. Hebrews 7, verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews is, of course, referencing Psalm 110 there. This is who Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the one who fulfills this requirement. But his priesthood is not temporary. It did not end with his death like Aaron's priesthood ended when he died. Jesus is the Son of God. His priesthood will never end because even now he lives at the right hand of the Father. One final text here, 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Christ is our mediator. He approached the presence of God when we were utterly unable to do so. He did this on our behalf, on behalf of all of his people, He is the only one who can restore peace between God and sinners. Only the perfect God-man could bring God and man together. They anticipated a a mediator. These were were but a few of the many uh, messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that point to Christ. There are over 90 texts in the Old Testament, and a number of those have multiple messianic prophecies prophecies in them, like Isaiah 53. I mean, this is a study you you could really undertake for a long time, and we spent 25 minutes on it. But for our purposes tonight, you can see just from a few texts that there was a long history, a deep anticipation for the Messiah, for the arrival of Christ. He didn't just show up in his incarnation in a vacuum. They were looking for him. They anticipated him. Next time, we'll examine the person of Christ namely his divinity and his humanity, the bringing together of of deity and humanity into into one person, Jesus Christ. There is a short list of uh, recommended reading there, I think on your last page, I think I put that in the handout. Those are just general resources, a couple of systematic theologies, one from Wayne Grudem, I think is really helpful, that brother words things in just a way that's really helpful. His, uh, his section on Christ is great, and then John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew's um, Systematic Doctrine as well is on there. Um, and, and then two uh, books, one from John Piper, 
Um, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, highly recommend that one. And then one from MacArthur, The Gospel According to God. Uh, he just unpacks Isaiah 53 in, in that book. Such, such a helpful um, book about Isaiah 53. So I would recommend that you get your hands on those if you want some additional reading. Uh, when we get to the atonement in particular, I'll give you some very specific reading for that if you'd like to read more on that. But, well, that, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you so much for this evening. Uh, thank you for the church and uh, just the commitment these folks have to your body. I pray that these times on Sunday night would be helpful as we, as we unpack who you are in your word. Help us to really dial in to your word and help us to, uh, to really gain you uh, this, this semester in Christ's name.